Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are joined by David Preston, the president and founder of PeopleSuite. With over 18 years of experience in managing relationships and sales teams, David Preston's passion is meeting and exceeding a client's goal. David has served in positions as SVP, VP, and regional manager for national banking organizations, which includes Regions Bank and U.S. Bank. David has a keen insight into corporate and project-level financial analysis and a strong understanding of the market fundamentals that drive success. As president of PeopleSuite, he believes his team of executive recruiters have the experience, skills, and search techniques necessary to identify outstanding candidates to exceed a company's employment needs. David, we are so excited to have you on the podcast, my friend. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. We're going to start where we always start. Tell us a little bit about how we got here today. So my journey is a bit atypical. You know, I, I know I have founder in my title, but uh, I actually didn't found the business. Okay. Uh, I think every, there's lots of different kinds of entrepreneurs in the world. Um, some are family businesses. They come in second generation. Some have a great idea and they build something from scratch. Uh, my story is a bit somewhere in between. So okay. as you uh, highlighted in, in the introduction there, I was a banker for 14 years. Hmm. Um, I, I don't know in my network of entrepreneurs, any other folks that survived banking and actually became entrepreneur <laughs> after <laughs> that uh, a career in banking, just because we're generally bankers tend to be so risk averse. Yeah. And, um, and, but I, I did, I grew up, I got my first job out of college as a uh, credit analyst for Regions Bank and kind of grew into a uh, portfolio guy on the real estate side. So I was financing income property and, and built a career in over 15 years, kind of grew to a senior VP at U.S. Bank and, and really had a phenomenal experience in banking. Um, I got a phone call from my dad. He had started a business called Preston and Partners. This was 18 years ago, and uh, he had built it up to you know, about a million dollar business. But it was had some good clients, but he never really got to the point that there was any scale to the mm. uh, uh, to the practice. And. He gave me a call one afternoon. I remember I was grilling in my driveway. It was uh, one of those moments that you look back on and you know exactly where you were. And uh, he said, hey, I, I, it's time. Um, why don't you come and join me and help me build this thing? And that was, the practice was about 10, 11 years old at that point. Okay. And uh, I had a lot of experience, in, experience managing sales teams, um, the operation side of, of uh, sales, managing KPIs, uh, holding people accountable. And, and Gary had built a practice that was kind of a merry band of misfits. Uh, they were just <laughs> individual contributors with no structure. And it was just, it just was impossible to scale. But he had, he had built a couple of nice clients. So me being the risk averse banker that I was, looked at the situation and said, you know, we, I, think we, I think I have an opportunity to really build something. So I left my kind of successful career and joined the family business of executive retained search. At the time, it was called Preston and Partners. Okay. Um, managed the desk, learned the business. Uh, you know, it's, it's essentially a sales business, right? We're selling clients, we're selling candidates. Uh, once we have candidates, we sell the client again on the candidates we found. Um, we're constantly selling. And that was really what I had, had come up in the banking side. I was on the sales side of banking and uh, calling on developers and, and real estate, you know, to, to finance real estate transactions. 
So I, I was, I had strength in, in managing sales teams and, and it was a really fit, a good strong fit for me to come in and do this. Um, a couple of years into the practice, uh, I, I, I remember the search actually, we were doing the uh, head of talent for um, Cracker Barrel mm. and we successfully placed the, uh, the top HR person at Cracker Barrel and she came to us and said, hey, can you do our payroll manager? And at the time we were doing nothing but executive retained search and it just didn't fit kind of the work that we did. And it drove me nuts because there was some other search firm was going to come in and do that work for our client. And why shouldn't we? Um, so I began the um, um, kind of the process against really the will of most of the people in our practice of building a, a contingency division within our um, uh, within the kind of the uh, search world. Mm. And we called that people suite. Um, Built it from scratch for two years and uh, hired an employee. We, you know, close it, close a search, and that would fund payroll for the next couple of months. And we'd hire somebody else. And uh, really, for about three years, didn't take any uh, cash out of the business so that we could scale and grow it as quickly as we could. Um, fast forward three years after the founding of People Suite, and People Suite had grown to be bigger than Preston and Partners. Whoa! And uh, so we. And at that point, they were both fairly sizable practices. We had uh, we had you know really put a lot of processes and, and um, systems in place, and made the decision that it didn't make sense to manage two websites, two brands, two um, you know uh, visions, et cetera. The marketplace it was confusing, and we merged both businesses, uh, Preston Partners and People Suite, into a common practice of uh, People Suite. So we are now a a suite of people related services we offer retained executive search we've got an entire differently uh, different group that does contingency direct hire and uh and another group that does contract so we are now kind of a uh, a bucket or umbrella of of services for our clients and we we offer all of them and we have a lot of opportunity to cross sell across our different platforms interesting um, yeah so, so when I say I was kind of a blended, um, you know, I came into a business that was already founded. The, I, I didn't have the original idea, uh, but uh, I had the idea of, of expanding what we did. And uh, it's really that, that, that multiple service lines kind of model is what has allowed us to really scale our practice and, and dig deeper into our existing clients and offer additional services. It's what's allowed us to, to grow the way that we have. I've got several questions. Um, the first is when you initially started people suite, what was the primary focus there? So you went from the executive search, just purely executives to, to what, like, how would you describe at that time? What were you now offering in that early day? Sure. So there's a lot of pushback for us to build a, what's called a contingency search practice because, um, there's, there's multiple different kinds of search, right? You have a retained search where, and, and the names of these search practices are really reflective of how our clients pay us. Okay. So retain, retain searches, you pay me retainers along the way. It's a, you know, a third up front, a third, you know, uh, during the search and a third when we complete contingency searches, we spec all of our work and our fee is contingent upon us putting a butt in a seat mm. and it's higher volume, um, a little less high touch and we're at speed to market. We're usually competing against other search firms. And, uh, but we, we built the contingency search practice kind of from a retained mindset uh, and doing the research and, and really um, proactively going out and seeking candidates. And so we, we built it differently than what most contingency search firms, how they operate, because we, all we knew was this high touch, very custom, um, dive deep with candidates. That's what we knew and what we did really well on the retained side. And it's what's yeah. required, required of executive search. 
but contingencies, it's a little bit different um, in what our, our client expectations are and how fast we move. So we, we kind of took the best of, um, of retained search and, and brought it into a contingency model. And those, those candidates are more mid-level. I mean, our average comp on a contingency direct hire search is around 100,000. So we play in that mid-market uh, manager level, director level sometimes, but uh, uh, anything from a financial analyst at 50K a year up to a you know, senior product manager at a consumer products company that might be making 140 wow. and, and, every, and everything in between. Um, but there's a, an expectation in the marketplace that those are executed at a contingency level. And uh, we can now offer, uh, we can do their VP of HR and then come downstream and have a separate team execute that payroll manager that we talked about earlier. Yeah. So we, we can be many things to, uh, to a single client and hopefully do all of it really well. Was it hard at the beginning to find the resources to really be able to put behind that to get it off the ground when it wasn't the main focus of the company at that time? I had, you know, fortunately I had my dad, which was still in the practice at the time. And he kind of took on management of the retained practice and, and really had been the leader of the, that business uh, for, you know, 10 previous years. So he gave me the bandwidth to step aside and really focus on building the contingency group. Um, from a resource standpoint, we've built everything uh, without debt. Uh, so we have, uh, wow. it's a 100% organic growth story. And uh, so there's no, we haven't acquired anybody or, um, you know, used leverage to expand or anything. We've been, we've just been very conservative in our financial management of the practice and, and how we build it and a lot of reinvestment back into our practice uh, from, you know, from our, uh, from our, our clients, we, uh, we, we just reinvest and continue to grow. I mean, we've hired four people in the last four weeks. So we just, that's just uh, how we've always operated very conservatively and, and how we will uh, continue to do so. How many people, how many people total right now are working for people suite? I think we're 26 right now. So okay. we have uh, people in New Jersey, you know, consumer products is, is uh, just to give you an idea. We, we primarily focus in retail consumer products and manufacturing. So um, uh, retailers across the country, a lot of grocery, specialty retail, um, clients like, uh, I, I'd rather actually, not, maybe I don't name clients, but a lot of grocery retail, a lot of specialty retail. And then um, uh, in, in New Jersey, we have a gentleman there, Hayes, that manages our consumer products practice. So we do consumer healthcare, things that you can buy at a Walgreens over the counter. Mm -hmm. And then uh, a lot of uh, consumer products. So brands that you would know um, that you yeah. buy at your, your local grocery store. And then CPG led us into manufacturing because all those, all those products have to get made somewhere. And uh, clients would come to us and say, hey, can you do my you know, uh, a shift supervisor or a plant manager? And that evolved into an entire manufacturing business that's now about a third of our overall, overall practice. Wow. And how are those, how are those 26 people kind of divided up? Where, where are they primarily putting their time and focus? You know, as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're all salespeople. Um, we've built the model where it's uh, uh, what in our industry is called 360. So um, everybody in our practice has the opportunity to sell and manage clients. Mm. Um, most of our new people, as they come in, recruit on orders that are on our board already. They're not expected to come in and sell from day one. So we, we bring them in as recruiters, teach them the business, teach them how to sell. And then, and then, you know, in year two is when folks will, will start to build out their own desk of clients. And, and uh, you know, hopefully then we put people under them to help them support their order flows and their clients. So uh, that, that's really how we've operated. Um, our people are independent. Uh, we, you know, uh, one of the things that we've done from a culture perspective is, is there's a, in, in recruiting in general, there's a uh, kind of a, you know, Wolf of Wall Street kind of 
call center, a lot of people calling on the phones, you know, manage with a whip. Yeah. Sales bullpen kind of mentality. And and we really don't operate that way. Um, So it's all about uh, results and we, we hire mature independent uh, people that, that, that can uh, um, operate independently. So one of our values is be the wolf. We, we hunt as teams, but there is still this independent quality uh, uh, that, that is really critical in our organization because we are still small and nimble and, uh, you know, I've got one person in New Jersey. I've got uh, two people in Kentucky, one person in Alabama, one person in Atlanta. You know, I need them to be able to uh, survive uh, and, yeah. and really own their desk and, and kind of be the wolf in the market. Uh, but we, we're very much a team and we hunt together. So that's a, a theme that, that, that uh, pervades our, you know, kind of permeates our entire that. practice. What has been most helpful in helping them understand and execute on that kind of culture and mentality? So, you know, it starts with our hiring process, right? We, we hire people. Um, we're, unlike most search firms, we're big believers in assessment. So we, we actually offer assessment to our clients, but we also use it internally. Um, mm. So we, we, uh, we behavioral assess all of our, our potential um, applicants into our practice. And um, Are you and using be- predictive index or something similar? Yeah, no, we, uh, we use a, a platform called PXT. Okay. which is, it's been around for a while. There, there's dozens and dozens of assessment tools, but that one yeah. is, it's very customizable and, and uh, easy to use and, and gives us the data that we need to make uh, in, informed decisions. It's not the only thing that we use because I, there's not one recruiter in our practice that's, whose assessment looks like somebody else's. Right. But it, it, what it really does is it, it A, I, I'm looking for a couple of key things. It does measure uh, independence and autonomy and uh, assertiveness. And so I'm looking for if, if somebody is very low on kind of the independent scale, I start to think, all right, they're going to, they're going to require a lot of coaching. Uh, yeah. That's somebody that, that may still be successful in our practice, but they need to be in our corporate office here in Morrisville. We've got about a team of 10 people that, uh, that are in Charlotte in our, in our office. Okay. And that might, might be somebody that just needs to be in the team. And, uh, but you know, we're, we're expanding nationally. Our practice is national in scope. So um, yeah, we, we, about half of our team are, are, in there usually operating out of their out of their houses but uh, definitely part of the framework very team-oriented approach we're communicating every day but we've got people all over the country that are um, so I, I can do different things with different people but we we assess sure. them to kind of figure out where where they're going to be successful and and how to onboard them appropriately what our expectations of coaching should be um, and uh, it just gives us uh, gives our employees the best chance to be successful once they're on board i love that I actually want to go back for a second to the beginning of your story when you 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 got the phone call from your dad saying it's time. And <laughs> yeah. I'm curious at why he thought that was the right time to bring you on. And then why did you think it was a good time to pivot a career and dive into this? So I, you know, I'm sure everybody remembers 08, 09 time frame. It was not a fun time uh, in the U.S. economy, yeah. <laughs> and it was not a fun time as a banker. I think he he was listening to me kind of pitch and moan every day about uh, kind of what what my work had become. <clears throat> and a lot of production guys in banking they they uh, they pivot when times are bad into a role called REO, which hmm. is real real estate owned. And in the banking world, those are the those are the bad guys. So over the course of about a year and a half in 08 and 09, I think I had been deposed maybe. 30, 40 times as part of me chasing guarantors, foreclosing on property. Um, my fun job of, of making loans and, and financing uh, projects where I could see, 
became me taking that away from people and suing mm. people because they weren't performing on assets. So my fun job became a horrible job. And, uh, but I, I, I think my dad saw in me uh, potential. And um, he also knew that his practice that he had built today could be something more special if he had the right team member and partner to help him scale the business because he couldn't do it alone. And that's why this whole thing just worked. And we, you know, we, wow. we've had a, a really amazing journey. There's, there's a lot of challenges working with a parent as uh, who's also, you know, a partner. And, um, and I've got uh, lots of stories along the, in, in that vein, <laughs> but you know, we're, we're now, um, we're about a week and a half away from, uh, I'm actually going to have, I said, we've, we've, we've been debt free. I'm actually closing on an SBA loan and we're going to have to buy my dad out. And that's kind of the culmination. It's like the, you know, the top around a wedding cake where uh, it's a, a culmination of, of close to 10 year journey to get to the point where I'm now going to be the sole owner um, in a couple of weeks. Wow, man. Good for both yeah. of you. When, yeah. when you had gotten that call, had that been something that you guys had kicked around for years and were saying, Hey, now's the time, or had you never kicked it around and we're just now exploring that idea? Yeah, never kicked around. It was a complete surprise call. I think that's why I remember it so well. Uh, yeah. It just it just really caught me off guard, and it wasn't. I didn't make the decision on that call. We 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 stood on it for uh, quite a while, my wife and I, and um, but it just it felt right, and it felt like a great opportunity for me to uh, control my own destiny. You know, I'd been working for the man for and doing very well. It's not like I was, you know. I wasn't destitute at the point. I gave up a pretty nice career at that point to uh, yeah. to make this leap. But I tell you what, I, I after eight years of entrepreneurial kind of mindset, and um, I, I could I, I could never go back to working for someone. It just is uh, it's not not in my DNA anymore. And you know, I, I had started businesses when I was a kid. I was selling golf balls. I picked golf balls out of the creek. I had a lawn mowing business. I, I took trash cans out for $10 a month uh, wow. for, in our neighborhood. I mean, I was always doing stuff as a kid to, um, you know, from an entrepreneurial mindset and earning my, uh, uh, you know, earning money. And uh, even as a 13, 14, 15 year old kid, I, I didn't work for anybody. I was always just kind of had my own little businesses in the neighborhood and did really well. So I think it was in me and it has been in me for a long time. You know, my dad's an entrepreneur. So um, this is something that had been attractive to me and, and uh, you know, it was just ready. And the timing was right because of kind of where I was at in my career and the things that I was doing were losing their fun. Yeah. So it just, it just made a lot of sense. Well, it's, uh, you mentioned earlier uh, coming from a risk averse kind of culture and even having a personality that's maybe more naturally risk averse. Yeah. You, risk tolerance is, is like kind of par for the game and in, in any entrepreneurial journey, right? How have you seen yourself grow and your tolerance of risk? Was there anything that you, a mindset shift or a practice that, that helped you kind of get more comfortable with that? You know, I, I, when I evaluated the decision to join, I think the fact that the business had already been set up uh, and had some clients so that helped me kind of go, all right, this is not, I'm not leaving work and building, uh, you know, I was doing, like I said, I was doing pretty well. I, yeah. I wasn't leaving something that I didn't feel like I couldn't build. And uh, so I was able to take kind of what my dad had had, uh, had started and, and really build framework. So there was less risk than I think what most entrepreneurs uh, start. Sure. I had, at that point, I had two kids, you know, two babies at home. I mean, I had, there were other factors. I think it becomes harder and harder particularly if you've been in a corporate environment, it becomes harder and harder the older you get. Yes. And kids happen and, and uh, 
yeah, there's more on the line, right? So, uh, you know, we're, we're already teaching our kids about entrepreneurship and um, they have a lot of the same businesses my 11 year olds do that I did when I was a kid. And, and we're trying to teach them so that they can maybe take some of those risks earlier in their life because it does become harder. But for me personally, I'm, I've certainly become um, less uh, risk averse. If that's not a double negative. Um, uh, but I still am... My uh, EO f- friends, my entrepreneurs organization friends would tell you that um, I'm still probably one of the most risk averse people they know kind of within the framework. We still manage our balance sheet extremely conservatively. Um, you know, I keep three months of cash on hand to manage the books and, and uh, I, I'm reserving for months of payroll. And I just I, I still manage this thing uh, conservatively. So when like, for example, it probably helped with COVID. Oh, it did. It, it I. I was of the mindset that, you know, when PPP came through, I was a little bit disappointed, honestly. And we took, we took the money, uh, but we could have survived uh, easily yeah. because we had balance, we had, we had cash in our book that could, could have covered payroll for a long, long time. And, you know, I, I looked at it as, man, I tell you, I th- the other search for owners that I know in the markets place don't manage their books that way. And yeah. we would have survived and they wouldn't have. Yeah. But PPP kind of kept everybody afloat. So I, I almost was like, man, I wish <laughs> <laughs> this could have weeded out my competition. Oh, it could have been, it could have really weeded out a lot of folks. And, and, uh, but I, you know, I, I'm, I'm actually grateful. It was, it was the right thing to do for the economy to get, uh, get, get that much money kind of pumped into the economy quickly and, and save a lot of jobs. But, yeah. uh, yeah, we, we, we were prepared for it before it happened and it didn't catch us off guard and we will continue to be prepared for it because I think this, some of the lessons that I learned in my banking career, when I shifted from a production mindset, I saw these developers and how high in the hog they were living in. Um, and then I was part of bringing them down, um, and forcing bankruptcies and taking properties from people. And it was, it was my job. It was a really unfortunate, not fun thing to do. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, they had personal guarantees on these. Things. So I saw, I saw what, what, <laughs> I saw what, what it was before and what it was after. And I just, I, I knew if I was going to take this entrepreneurial leap, I would never allow myself to be in that position. So yeah. we still manage things very conservatively. So I'm still risk averse, uh, although, um, you know, I'm, I'm willing to take a lot more risk today than I, I probably was, you know, 10 years ago. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up because that is a really important lesson that I saw played out in, in COVID where the right balance of choosing calculated risk and and recognizing like, Hey man, no risk, no reward. Yet at the same time, being disciplined in setting aside profits and keeping, like you said, operating expenses around for several months I had. So I run a coaching firm uh, where at the time we weren't as specialized right now. We specialize primarily in fast growing companies. At the time we had everything from fortune 500 all the way down to a solo kind of entrepreneur. Right. And I was watching all these businesses we serve get hit really hard. And so what came to mind was my smallest client in terms of size. He was a custom manufacturer, uh, sorry, a custom fabricator out of UGA, by the way. Uh, He's out in Athens and um, he is unbelievable. Like any live uh, set or whatever, he creates ridiculous things, custom for companies, for events, for whatever. But obviously that industry got shut down immediately. Like all live things are gone, right? And I called him and I was like, how are you doing? Right. You're my smallest guy. Like, how are you doing? He's like, I'm good. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, dude, I, I've been putting money back into the business for years. I've got, I said, how long can you go with no income? Cause he he's, did say, he's like, oh, all of our business is gone. Like there's no business for the foreseeable future. He said, I can, I can go for a year. 
I was like, you can go for a year with zero profits, like for zero money coming into business. He was like, yeah. I was like, dude, you're going to be out. You're going to be able to outlive your competitors. So we spent the next, we spent the next year just focusing on what he could do in the meantime. Like we looked at it like the flood, like the water, the the tap's going to turn back on. How have you built the arc between now and then? So that when business comes back in, you're actually prepared. And it, I mean, he is blown up. Like since the, since the world has started to turn back on, he did so much investing in himself and his business and whatever during that waiting period that now he's working with Nike. Now he's working with all these bigger places because he was the guy that was ready. Right. Yep. And that's what you remind me of where I'm like that, that is such a critical skill that we overlook. Cause we get, we get romanticized about risk sometimes. Right. <laughs> yeah, we do. And, and there's, but there's still so much risk in the market. I mean, all the <laughs> speculation on cryptocurrencies and it's all, I mean, there's 10 years ago, I would never be the guy that, that bought, Ethereum or Bitcoin, um, yeah. but you know, t- today I am. But I'm still of a mindset like, okay, let me take let me take the pot of money that I'd be willing to go to Vegas with and invest that. Exactly. Um, so, but I'm, I'm I, I, I'll I'll never be the guy that, that stakes it all. Well, so, my I, business you, partner is very similar to you. And when I first only put only put in money, you'd be okay losing. Yeah. And that yeah. that was his guideline. Like, you want, he goes, you want to be on the rocket ship. If this is a rocket ship, you want to be on it. Yeah. But because it's such a high risk thing right now, like only put money in that you'd be okay. Like you said, if you went to Vegas and you lost it, you, your, your family would still be okay. And yeah. it's just a cool balanced way of looking at it. It is. So you brought up something that's um, you know, really interesting. We're, our, our business today is busier. We've never seen a hiring market like this in, in the 18 years of the practice. This is as crazy today as it has ever been. Um, so our practice is working uh, just about twice as many orders as we were working on in January, February, 2020. Uh, and the, it's just insane um, <laughs> how, how, what the hiring market looks like. It's, it's, it, there's challenges to that. We're, we're thrilled that, that so many of our clients are hiring and things are good. It's also very, very difficult right now from a candidate perspective to get people to move. Um, strong candidates are looking at three, four or five orders. So it's harder to get people across the finish line, but uh, we just finished our, our biggest month ever in March. Mm. Um, so there's been this massive snapback. And I, I look back on the thing, the, the main reason we're able to be successful today uh, with this kind of volume uh, is the investment in 2020 that we, uh, we, we just spent a tremendous amount of time and, and, and resources investing in our systems and processes. Mm. Um, new applicant tracking system, um, new marketing campaign. So we've, we've invested in HubSpot and, and a lot of uh, um, inbound marketing campaigns. Uh, we, we just, we've, it, we invested, we completely changed how we operate during 2020 when we had the time to do it. Yep. Um, because we were down, uh, second quarter, we were down 50% yep. uh, over the previous quarter of the prior year. And so we found we had, re- we had time and we had resources within our team to really focus on how we do the work. And we, we perfected early, it's never perfect, right? We're constantly right, right. working, but we, we spent so much time doing that. Now today, those, those new systems and processes that we put in place have enabled that same team because we really, we're hiring now, but uh, we're still basically at, at a headcount that we were at the beginning of 2020. Uh, but we're doing twice as much work with that same team. So we've been able to drive a tremendous amount of efficiency because of the investment that we made uh, while things were down. So, wow. you know, pandemic, uh, terrible situation, but it's also an opportunity for you to kind of evaluate how you're doing things um, 
and and hey you've got the time um, yeah. to do it and and that's that's how we that's how we focused last year and it's now enabled us to just it's going to be a huge year um, and we, we've got feeling very very optimistic about the hiring market even into 2022 heck yeah so, man yeah. what a congratulations to you and your team i mean that is thanks as great leadership you know taking that time and saying all right if we're not going to be able to work in the business as much for a period of time well, then what does that afford us? It affords us the opportunity to work on the business. What are our weaknesses? If growth were to come back, are we prepared for it, right? Like the infrastructure, uh, and we had to do the same thing. We lost 36% of our business in Q2 last year and we're shell-shocked, you know? That was not the year we were planning for and yep. we were a much smaller company than you at the time. And our main thought was, how, all right, what do we have time to work on now? What are our weaknesses being exposed? One for us was, uh, not knowing how to, um, not knowing how to consistently get new prospects, right? So our business had been, been built almost all organically word of mouth. Hey, hey, this person wants to talk to you. I told them what you did. You know, you were great for us. And we were like, man, we're going to die like that in this culture. <laughs> we, we're gonna have to figure out how to like market effectively and how to target customers and learn how to connect with them and all that kind of stuff. And then also some internal stuff like, Hey, we're too vague on what our, what our solution is. We're too vague on who our target market is. And it was just so fun. It was hard, but it's so fun to be able to take that time to sharpen and to, and to invest. Right. And now we're, well, now we're seeing the payoff, which is really yep. cool. I'm yep. curious, I'm curious for you. Um, when you do look back at the different things you invested in, are there any that stick out like one or two that stick out that you, you just are like, wow, that really, that really has paid off for us. Um, so we, we started a new line of business and we hired a couple people to uh, do that. Even in the middle of the pandemic, we said, this wow. is something we want to do. We got, we learned a lesson from our manufacturing business. And we, when we started doing manufacturing six years ago, this was kind of, uh, the pre, not a political discussion, but uh, Trump was very good for manufacturing. And we had begun to build our manufacturing practice prior to this really significant expansion that we saw. Uh, in manufacturing over the last four years, we began to build that practice five or six years ago. And so mm -hmm. we were ahead of that curve. Um, and we see an opportunity in uh, cannabis in the same way. So we are beginning to build a uh, cannabis practice. Uh, we've got two, two professionals now in our, our, our they're, but they're consumer products professionals. Yeah. And uh, we're leveraging our, our consumer products experience and our ability to connect with those candidates to bring a, a level of professionalism to the cannabis world that his uh, cannabis firms, what we found is they don't want to hire cannabis people. They want to hire uh, consumer products, classically trained professionals. Yeah. They have a, it's got to be marketed the same way. They got, you know, product managers, brand managers. These are, these are CPG people. They're just selling a different product. that's not legal everywhere, Yeah, um, but it's, <laughs> It, it is a, uh, it will be at some point. So we're trying to get ahead of that game. And uh, in the last six months, we've seen a, a uh, that message very, very well received. And now we're, we're working with cannabis companies all across the uh, uh, Western U.S. and Canada. And it's just been a really um, well-received message. And we're doing, we're doing really, really good work in that space. So, you know, this is one of those opportunities, again, you see and you go, all right, business is down. Um, where do we pivot? How do we how do we build a new line of business? Our um, you know our, our CPG firms are either most of them were really struggling because of supply chain issues or whatever. A lot of our CPG practice was down. Um, our defense uh, aerospace business was uh, with a lot of a lot of hiring freezes there. 
So, you know, it's like, you know, how do, what do we do? Where do we invest? And, and that's been something that's really paid a lot of dividends for us. That's awesome. The reason why I was pointing at my hat is these guys, Sunday Scaries, are a CBD company out of California yeah. that we had on the podcast. They're just awesome guys. Um, that's great. Need yeah. To connect, need to connect you with them in case there's a, an overlap of need there. Hey, um, absolutely. My question for you, uh, you mentioned you were able to see the trend and you, you were able to even hop on board about a year or two before uh, really the curve. How do you do that as a business owner? <laughs> How do you, not just that one time, but like often we have to get up above the current and the present and do our best to forecast, to see market trends, to see vulnerabilities coming or opportunities coming. Is there anything you've, you've developed or anything you, you could pass on that would help somebody do that? Hire good people. I, it, I, most of the good decisions that we've made have been as a result of having really good people in our practice. And mm. uh, the decision to get into manufacturing was, I think I mentioned it earlier, we were doing consumer products business and those products have to be made. So we were having a request there. And then we hired a, a, a gentleman, he's actually he's not with the practice anymore, but uh, he had deep manufacturing experience. And so he gave us the opportunity and the experience at his own desk to meet the need of our consumer products clients. And then that led to what we found as we started dipping our toe into manufacturing is that there just wasn't um, a, a very, very blue ocean uh, with yeah. respect to contingency search firms doing quality work for degreed professionals. There's a lot of, um, you know, the manpowers and the uh, aerotechs of the world that are doing very low level contract manufacturing RPO work. But if you need a, a degreed professional, uh, an engineer, a process engineer, an operations professional, a quality professional, degreed professionals, we, we, speak, we speak well to those types of candidates. And it just was not a very competitive space within our industry. So as we started getting into it, we saw the opportunity and now we've, we've began to invest more. Mm. Um, you know, I, I have a, most of my entrepreneurial journey has been a bit accidental. Uh, we've, done things and then said, wow, this is, this could, this could really be something big. Uh, we're now <laughs> yeah. trying to be, we're trying to be more proactive, like our cannabis business. Um, I'm launching a new business right now. That is, I, I have a, a theory about entrepreneurship. It's if you want to do it on the idea inceptions phase, this is the first time I've done this. So I, I, I share this go. with the I share this with a grain of salt, but if you can learn a niche really, really learn a niche, now, I don't care what business you're in. There are problems that need to be solved within that niche. And we have, we have a specific problem uh, with backdoor hires. And these are, these are placements or candidates we submit to clients that end up getting hired six months from now uh, that we don't know about. They hire them because, but those are our candidates and we have a protection usually for a year. And we have a lot of candidates slip through the crack that are cracks that our clients hire mm. uh, that we don't know about and don't earn our fee on. And it's, it's a six digit problem for our business. So that's a problem that I've been trying to solve from a software and automation standpoint. We, we have a solution for that now. Um, but my, my formula for innovation is learn a niche. What is the, discover what the problem is, solve the problem. And if you can solve the problem with a SaaS platform and a recurring revenue model, great. And then you go out and sell that solution to all of your competitors. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of um, where I'm at from a, um, my future entrepreneurial journey is going to be identifying problems and trying to find SaaS platforms that can solve those problems and sell them. So we'll oh, be coming to Yeah. We're going to be coming to market with a solution for search firms that addresses that issue uh, in a fully automated bolt on package that is, is uh, completely automated. So we're, we're excited about that, but 
Um, that's how we're, we're innovating going forward. Um, it's not necessarily that I'm getting ahead of the curve. It's about identifying a problem, solving it, selling it, selling the solution. I love that. Well, it leads me to my last question. Earlier on, when you mentioned scale, you mentioned um, expanding to multiple service lines. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that because sometimes when you do that, you can get into that over-diversified lack, lack of focus, trying to solve too many problems kind of thing. And then other times it's still within, I guess, maybe your niche and you're just capitalizing on other opportunities inside that problem. How, yep. how did that? How did you guys do that without losing focus? That we're offering so many random services that we've lost kind of our core focus. Yeah, well, I, I would, Mike. I would first say that they're they're not as random as as you think. It's if we can if we can, you know, go out and find and have a conversation with a CHRO or a CMO or a VP or, um, and we can do that really well. Why can't we do that? And have that same level of conversation with a candidate downstream, but just have a different pricing model. Okay. It's the only difference in what we execute is is how we how we bill our client. So these are not, this is not as big a stretch for us uh, to offer these different services as, as it may seem. The biggest problem for us in developing new service lines was our own internal trash uh, or head trash, as I like to call it, about if we do this, does it dilute our other brand? Um, mm. If we build a contingency line of a line of serve, uh, line of uh, um, a service line, and we're only going to charge our clients after we're successful, does that do our clients that are paying us retainers? Do they go? Why, why would I pay you along the way if I can hire that, that your other side of the practice, and I only have to pay you if you're successful? Um, so we had we had that dilution of our retained brand that we had to work with, and it's why I started People Suite as a separate business and built it before we merged, and because I wanted to prove out my model and uh, prove that we could do it successfully before we introduced it to our, our existing retained clients. Um, so it, it, was more, it was more head trash for us was the, uh, was the limitation. It wasn't, it wasn't as difficult. Um, and, and then again, it gets back to hiring good people. So I hired a gentleman that had uh, 20 years in, in managing contingency sales teams because the, the business is executed differently. Um, but we brought our best practices from the retained side. We brought, his name's Joe. We brought Joe's best practices in managing contingency work. And he helped me build that practice. And he's still with, uh, with, with me today. Um, so hire good people and um, keep them focused on what they're doing. And I've got, you know, on the retained side, I've got people managing that side of the business. And I, uh, you know, I give them the authority and autonomy to make decisions and hold them accountable. And, you know, I'm not personally trying to manage everything. I've got good sure. people uh, that, are, that are with me that are focused on their bucket. Yeah, I love that. So when you, we've talked about hiring good talent and the importance of that. I would love to just talk for a second about what you do once you get them. Like, how do you develop that talent? How do you retain them? How do you, how do you keep them growing and engaged and things like that? What have you guys seen that's worked? And then maybe are there any challenges that you experienced in, in doing so? Yeah, I mean, so we've been fortunate. We've had three years in a row of um, being awarded the best places to work award in the city of Charlotte. It's really wow. important to us. So culture is um, is really important. I've even talked about our values, uh, you know, whether it's be the wolf or one of our values is own it. Um, so we've we've been very um, intentional about how we built our practice and the kind of people that we want in it and what we want our culture to be like. And um, so we we hire people that fit the culture and we empower people to raise their hand and say that that's not that, that, that if we take this action, it doesn't align with our values. Yeah. And the only non-negotiable that I will terminate somebody on is a breach of values. And yep. our team knows that. Uh, but you know, we've got most of our employees have been with us for a long time. 
Um, Elaine's been with us for 12 years, Hayes for nine. Uh, Joe, I mentioned, helped me. he's been with us since the inception of our contingency practice. We've got people that have been in the practice years and years, and that's very, very unusual in, in the search practice. It's usually yeah. a very transient business. Yeah. And so we've got comp structures that reward them for their work. Um, we empower them and we find people and, and hire people that, that fit our culture. But, it, you know, coaching is, it, it, coaching is a really, really important. As CEO, I, I feel like I need to be spending at least 80% of my time on the people in the business, whether it's, it, it's strategy and people, that's where I focus. And I've got a chief operating officer that manages the day-to-day activities and operations of the business. And I'm focused on pe- people and strategy. So I spend a lot of time um, talking to my teams, supporting them, helping them on business development, um, whatever they need. And I, I've got an open door policy. There's not a person in my practice that's scared to text me or call me or talk through uh, what they're dealing with because we always approach it from a, uh, a healthy perspective of like, okay, um, how do we help? Like, what, what do we fix? What resource do you need? How do we, how do we get you from here to here? And yeah. um, so c- coaching is a big, big, big part of my, my job. And that's kind of changed over the years as we've grown. And uh, the addition of a chief operating officer into our practice was game changing to allow us to, to both grow the team and scale it, um, but still focus on the people. And now we've got uh, another person where I, I, you know, two years ago, I used to have to do it all and it just wasn't possible. Yeah. So, um, Sounds like you've been able know. to delegate elevate if we use that eos language yeah i tell you man there's so if you're if you're an eos guy if you've read uh gina wickman's book traction traction then uh yeah. you understand what an integrator is and how important a key integrator is he's got another book called uh rocket fuel rocket fuel yeah it's all about yeah. that integrator entrepreneur relationship and uh, i've got a guy in my practice tom that is really good and uh we've just trust each other completely and he has a different approach to things and how he thinks but we generally come to the same conclusion on how we need to move forward. And uh, he's really good at operations. And um, I think I'm, I'm, you know, I'll humbly say I'm, I feel like I'm pretty good at strategy and, and that's yeah. how we, uh, how, how the, how, how the, how we, how the teamwork makes the dream work. Absolutely, man. A huge fan of EOS. We've been helping companies implement that for years and yeah. just, just believe in it. Obviously there's other, other ways and other solutions, but that's just one I found that I know gets results. We've talked a lot about it on the podcast. Many founders on here have been using it and really, lo- really enjoying it. I had my, my L10 meeting was at 10 a.m. Uh, this morning. <laughs> so it's, uh, every week we're talking through what's, uh, what's on the list, list. How do we identify, discuss, and solve them? And what, what do we need to do for the next week? So I've got my key people that are on that call. And um, I think an evolution for us in the coming year is going to be taking that downstream and having our sales teams do uh, their own L10s and accountability. We're, we're just doing it from a leadership perspective, but man, it's really, really helped us keep focused and accountable within our, our leadership team. Love that. Love that. All right, David, let's get to your lightning round questions. This has been an awesome <laughs> conversation. So question number one for you, if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would it be? Be authentic. That's, why does that, why does that come to mind? Um, I, I just, our clients and uh, our HR professionals that we work with, our, our hiring managers, they have a, uh, their, their, their bullshit meters are strong. And um, <laughs> I just, I, I, authenticity is just a quality that I value uh, probably as much as grit. Um, so authenticity and, and, and for me, kind of honesty kind of plays into that. 
And uh, we just, we try to bring uh, on authentic approach. We're very transparent in our search processes and, and our interactions with our clients. And uh, I think it, it really helps create relationships that are lasting. Yeah, I love that. Number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also what was the worst? Invest in yourself probably is the, as I look at, at where I can deploy my capital, whether it's in the stock market or, um, you know, the returns that I can get investing in myself uh, far exceed anything uh, that I can, and I, and I can control what I invest here uh, yeah. and, and within my practice. So I, I just, I, yeah, that's where, that's where I choose to, um, um, to invest. It's just a, uh, it, I, I'm a confident guy. I know I can execute. Um, if it's not plan A, we pivot. It's plan B. But I, I that's where I want to. Uh, I want to. I want to invest. So Heck I don't yeah. know if that's advice I've gotten, but it's it's some kind of advice I would give. Yeah, yeah. What about the, what's the worst advice you've either gotten or maybe just heard floating around the industry or entrepreneurs that that you've found to be opposite? Boy, that's a toughie. The worst advice. Um, You know, I, free advice is usually worth what you pay for it. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I try really hard to not speak from a point of advice. And, and in the entrepreneurs organization that we, I'm, I'm really big believer in the O, um, we speak from experience, not from a, a standpoint of advice. Because yeah. when, you, when you start going down the rabbit hole of giving advice, it's also about judgment. You know, if I were you, I would do this. Well, mm-hmm. if they don't do that, then are you are are they not good entrepreneurs? No, they they have they know more about their decision making process. So, we try to speak from experience and um, just hey, share I, your experience. Yeah, it's it's it's. Hey, I dealt with something similar. Here's what I here's what, this was my problem. These were the, the solutions I analyzed. Here's what I chose. And then you can then 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 the person that you're talking to can take that experience, learn from it, make their own decision, and there's no judgment cast. Yep. So. When you ask about advice, it's a, it's a really sensitive topic, to, topic for me because I'm so ingrained in the EO culture that yeah. advice is not something I choose to give freely. And um, folks that give me advice, I just take with a grain of salt because they just don't, it's impossible for somebody to understand the complexity Your of context. my issues and, or the context in which I make decisions. So I, I just, advice is not a place I play. Cool. I love that. Number three. What causes you the most worry or stress leading your organization? Kids. Um, I don't know how many kids are underneath our, our uh, we have a lot of parents in our organization, you know, 26, 25, 26 team members now, almost all of them have kids. Mm. And uh, the decisions that I make, I'm not, I'm not so worried about my people, but I do worry about their children because <laughs> I, I take uh, hiring decisions very seriously. I take firing decisions extremely seriously because of the impacts they have on family. And um, I've just got, I've got three kids of my own and uh, I don't stress anymore about um, making payroll or doing, doing those things. But I do, I do worry about the impacts that we have on family with the decisions that we make. Sure. Totally get that. All right. Number four, what is your current BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal? So we want to be the search firm of choice uh, for uh, in in the southeast. Um, I, I've got it. 
BHAGs to me are not necessarily American nature. I've got, we've certainly got financial goals that we want to meet, but um, I want to be the search firm of choice for all employers in the Southeast. That's where we want to be up. I, we're kind of targeted that I-85 corridor from Atlanta to Charlotte and uh, on over to Raleigh. And I want to, I want to own this market. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. All right. Our fun, creative question. Number five, if you could hop into a DeLorean, Go back to the past and tell yourself one thing out the driver's side window. When would you go back and what would it be? Yeah, I'd go back to um, my senior year of college. <laughs> I had a lot of fun through high school and college. I don't regret anything, but I, I, would, um, I would tell myself to make the leap sooner yeah. and, uh, and, and invest in yourself sooner. I, I was too, I was scared back then, and I I, uh, I had expectations that I needed a paycheck. But man, I I was a single guy for ten years coming out of college, and I had so much opportunity to um, to do something bigger. And not that that not that it's lost, but man, I wish I, I just think about where I could be today if I had you know started thinking entrepreneurial at a younger age when yeah. when the risk didn't matter. Yeah, man, that's so. What's fun about asking these questions? We've asked the same five questions to. 60 some odd founders now that have been on the podcast and it's fun for me just to see what are the common themes that pop up there's plenty of unique answers but that's one of them man i just keep hearing actually two things one most people caveat with i wouldn't change anything because you know which is a really great way of looking at stuff that like i whatever i've been through has led me to who i am today got it yeah no regrets love that love that perspective yet without changing anything they would say they wish they had started earlier bet on themselves earlier taking the leap earlier. And I just hope the audience hears that because they may be able to apply it, right? We can't go back and change our lives, but they might be in that place to say, yeah, why not? Why not do it now before the risk gets even crazier? Because the older we get, the more responsibility, the harder it is to take that leap, right? Um, So super cool, buddy. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been really fun hearing your story, learning from you. You guys are clearly uh, smart, integrous people that are building an amazing business. And I have no doubt that you are going to dominate that BHAG. So uh, thank you for being on the podcast today, buddy. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. This was fun. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results. 